Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Loads of you got in touch after yesterday's podcast asking, when should Rishi Sunak call the next election? Michael said mid-October this year, enough time for him to sort himself out, as much as his limited skills would allow him, before the economy has the opportunity to shrink drastically. It's a mixed bag there. Jake says he should call an election immediately. Glenn says now. Janet says it isn't for the media to decide or influence the general public that they can. It is subject to legislation. Although, of course, actually it isn't. The Fixed Term Parliament Act has been repealed. So Rishi Sunak can call an election whenever he wants. Do get in touch. You can email me, matt at times.radio, about anything we discuss on the podcast. Coming up today, lots of chat generally about you, Les, and other things which are happening in London. But uh, the question I want to know today is, whatever happened to the Greens? Why is this entire conversation about environmental policy happening without the Green Party really being part of it? And if everyone is that worried about climate change, why aren't the Green Party doing better, as they have been in other countries across Europe? So that's our big thing that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and this morning we are joined by the Times' Scottish political editor, Kieran Andrews. Morning, Kieran. Good morning, Matt. Where where in sunny Scotland are you this morning? I am in sunny Glasgow in the Times HQ up here. Oh, very nice, very nice. And uh, Katie Balls and the Spectator, where in the world are you, Katie Balls? I'm on the roof of Parliament, oh. hoping for the best. Well, let's hope that our, our long-standing experience is the worst place in the world to try and contact a Times correspondent is in Parliament. So this, this will hopefully go uh, very well. Um, now, I want to talk to you. I mean, there's been a lot of raking over what happened in the by-elections and ULES and all of that. But I wonder if we could zoom out a little bit to whatever happened to political leadership. Instead of going, oh, I've got this idea, but oh, no, nobody likes it, so we probably should stop doing that. Um, <laughs> this idea that, that you, Les, the, the answer to you, Les, was just, oh, well, no, people don't like it, so maybe we shouldn't do that. I thought it was a good idea, but maybe we shouldn't do it. Um, 
the, do we have a current crop, whether it's Rishi Sunak or uh, Keir Stubb, or even, you know, some extent, Humza Yousaf, they're not capable of, or at least don't seem to want to try to change the political weather, actually in a way that you could argue Boris Johnson could, Nicola Sturgeon definitely could, even, even arguably Jeremy Corbyn did, Katie. Yeah, potentially. I think you've got to break it down. So if we're talking about U-turns or changing your position under pressure... Boris Johnson did that all the time. That's I just true. think he was quite good at styling it out. <laughs> um, so, so he could do it with such conviction or pizzazz in a speech that, you know, it, it felt, um, or at least to some, it looked like a sign of strength as opposed to weakness. But, I mean, when it came to changing policy under pressure, he did it a lot. Jeremy Corbyn, a lot less so, because he, I suppose he was more of an ideological politician and by comparison i think rishi sunak's more comfortable sticking to a position and um, we've obviously had confusion over the past days on green issues um but i think the problem with rishi sunak is he's more comfortable on sticking in position and trade-offs yet he doesn't seem to seek the media or know how to work it in the same way um so it can just look as though you know he's buffeting along with all these things even if the policy hasn't really changed um, and actually, Kieran, one of the things that struck me is when people say, oh, you can't, you know, if something's unpopular, you definitely can't do it. David Cameron became Prime Minister on the promise of cutting public spending in 2010. If you you know, shape the argument and drag public opinion, whether you think of whether or not that was the right thing to have done, it is possible to sell quite unpopular things to the public. Well, it really speaks to this ability to paint a big particularly a big positive picture, but a big picture about what you are going to do in government. William Hague touched on this in his call for the Times this morning and also kind of feeding into what Katie was saying there about Boris Johnson. He was brilliant at, you know, sweeping brushstrokes to say, this is what I'm for, this is what we are going to do. You know, Nicola Sturgeon, when she was Scottish First Minister, um, was able to do that as well. You know, these are the big things that we are for and this is what we're going to do. And it just feels like there's an absence of that, um, uh, you know, of that of that big idea of what each political leader really wants to achieve. We know what they don't want. We know what all of the leaders don't want. But there, there's a real absence of of what they do want, of what they actually want to do to affect change. And without that thread running through a leadership, it makes it you know, it makes it difficult to bring together any coherence on individual policy issues. And Katie, I remember interviewing Ken Clark, and he was saying that almost everything they did in Thatcher's government was unpopular, but they did it because it was the right thing, and they thought it would work. And she won elections on the back of things that she said would work working, rather than, um, you know, constantly testing everything against public opinion and then dropping it the first side of trouble. Yeah, and I think Kieran's point about a lack of big vision applies to all the parties at the moment. Um, you effectively have a situation whereby Boris Johnson didn't want to do things that were painful. And now the election cycle is really out of sync for Rishi Sunak. And therefore, you tend to do the difficult yeah, decisions yeah, early on. 
that has now now you know we can talk about difficult decisions but are you actually going to do them a year before an election um and i think if you look at david cameron all the difficult decisions are pretty well timed so going into the election year you could say look at the progress we've made on the deficit look at this um now of course we're talking about inflation as the new deficit but that is largely out of rishi sunak's control no matter what he says um so i think the tory psychodrama of three different leaders and a lack of strategy after 2019 is, is catching up with them. That's interesting, that. Do you also wonder whether, uh, Kieran, there's a... Do we get, do we sort of swing between uh, successful, you know, successful politician followed by a slightly less successful one in terms of, uh, you know, in, in Scotland, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's dominated policy for so long, it was almost impossible uh, for someone to follow her, but also because she dominated for so long, there was no one else that good waiting in the wings. So I suppose that depends on the style of leader that has uh, come before them um, and and whether there's a succession plan. You look at, well, in Scotland, you look at Alex Salmond handing over to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, Salmond was always going to be big shoes to fill, given how he had dragged the SNP from uh, kind of also-rans into all-powerful majority government. And Nicola Sturgeon stepped up to become probably an even better election-winning machine comes to use of a struggle by comparison because there was never any real thought about who would succeed Nicola Sturgeon because of the type of politician she was. And use that similar example on a UK level with Tony Boyer handing over to Gordon Brown and the kind of style of um, leadership that Gordon Brown had meant that it was always going to be difficult for anyone to learn the ropes well enough to step up and, and follow on um, to be the next Labour leader after him. The, the current crisis in the Conservative Party just, I think, makes it very difficult for anyone in any circumstance, um, particularly with, as Katie put it, the kind of cycle drama that's been going on. I don't think it's a hard and fast rule that the next leader is going to be a disappointment. But it, needs <laughs> the leader, the, it needs the leader who is in position at that time to have actually put a bit of thought into what comes after their own personal legacy. Uh, let's turn our attention to a, a story. So I know uh, you've been covering a lot, um, Kieran, and it's interesting to get your your take on it. it. PMQs over the last few weeks, actually now, if, if not months, it's been noticeable that both Stephen Flynn, when we have had the Prime Minister there, and uh, Marmy Black, uh, when uh, the Prime Minister's not been there and it's been the deputies, actually using these attacks in Westminster to not just attack the Prime Minister, but also to attack the Labour Party. And we've sort of seen this tri triangular argument almost. Keir Starmer shouting back from the front bench. In particular, Keir Starmer saying you wouldn't scrap the two-child uh, benefit cap. You can't claim benefits for more than two children. Um, this was Stephen Flynn, uh, the SNP's leader in Westminster, criticising uh, Labour at PMQs last week. Mr Speaker, voters in Scotland are used to child poverty under the Tories. They almost expect it. But what they don't expect, what they don't expect is child poverty support from the Labour Party. And if we look very closely right now, there is a shiver running along the Labour front bench looking for a spine. Uh, shiver looking for a spine. Um, how is this playing out in... I mean, it's quite I interesting for us in Westminster, uh, Kieran, but how is this playing out in Scotland? I suppose it's a sign that the SNP feel like they need to take their fight to Labour because they are resurgent right across the country. Well, that that is the big point that underlines all of this. The SNP, for the first time in a long time, is a bit worried about the Labour Party in Scotland. It's been pretty comfortable for the SNP for the last decade or so, um, with Labour going through its 
own series of crises north and south of the border. But now they're back on the pitch and there are a lot of really, really tight seats in Scotland, particularly in west-central Scotland and that kind of central belt between Edinburgh and Glasgow and the, the satellite uh, towns and constituencies. And the SNP know that they just need to really fight hard. They're going to lose some of those seats to Labour, but they need to fight hard to edge Labour out in a few of them and not have a disastrous, um, in comparative terms, general election. And this this is a tactic that Stephen Foyne has really adopted since he came in as SNP leader to use PMQs to ostensibly have a pop at the at the UK government and the Conservative Party, but actually more so to attack Labour. And on the two-child policy, um, it has caused a split between the Scottish and UK Labour parties. Um, and as Sarah, the Scottish Labour leader, says the, the cap should be scrapped, and that is backed by the overwhelming majority of uh, Labour members of the Scottish Parliament, but they're, they're coming up against um, a bit of a brick wall in, in Keir Starmer and the, and the UK Labour leadership. Now, a bit of distance is, is fine sometimes between the um, parties in London and Edinburgh, but Anas Sarwar and Keir Starmer have prided themselves on having a functional relationship, unlike what has gone <laughs> before with their predecessors. And actually what the Scottish Labour Party needs at some point is probably a win rather than a fight with uh, with the UK party. Yes, a good point. And um, uh, Katie, it's also worth remembering this whole debate about welfare, the public support, the two-child cap. Um, uh, so although it's been a debate in the left in parts of the Labour Party, actually Keir Starmer is putting, him on the, putting himself on the side of voters as well as it being a broader message for their sort of fiscal responsibility. Yes, it's easier for them to say it's because there's no money and then try and blame the Tories for that. But you scratch the surface and those close to Keir Starmer will point out the polling, which suggests this isn't, you know, it, it's not something that they think is necessarily going to work against Keir Starmer when it comes to some of those 2019 voters they are trying to get back from the Tories. Um, but I think as we're getting closer now it does feel we're entering a new stage where Labour's policies are becoming a more scrutinised one but also Labour's going to have to keep saying more ahead of the next election and therefore potentially just if this if this is the line keep upsetting Scottish <laughs> Labour um, the devolved mayors um, City Calm <laughs> see the fight going on Mark Drakeford Let's, let, yeah, let's exactly. not forget Mark Jakeford in Wales. But, and also, I mean, with the Welsh government, mm. it feels as though the leader's office wants to distance themselves from many things Welsh Labour is doing. And I think it does have the potential to get quite messy because it's one thing having a fight with one part of your party in terms of the Corbynites is another just having fights left, right, centre, particularly with those who have actually one power. It shows you how hard yeah. it is potentially governing rather than being in opposition. Right, let's turn our attention to the telly. Last night, there was a show on Channel 4, the MasterChef judge, Greg Wallace, hosted the British Miracle Meat. Uh, uh, let's just take a listen to uh, what happened in the documentary. A new line of affordable protein is hitting our shelves. This is engineered human meat. That's right, a protein made from human cells that promises to be cheaper and tastier than any of its competitors. I'm Greg Wallace, and I'm off to visit Good Harvest, where a whopping six tonnes of human meat is engineered every day. That is stunning. 
He's so good playing Greg Wallace, uh, as we said. Uh, but it, it was a spoof, we should point out at this point. Uh, but making comment on uh, the cost of living crisis. Ben Dowell, the Times' uh, TV journalist, uh, watched it. Um, was it any good, Ben? Well, it was. I think it was quite good. I mean, it was a different viewing experience for me because I was tipped off ahead of time that it was a spoof. So uh, I was fully prepared for the surprise. I think um, if I'd watched it and then the penny had dropped, and I, th- I think it would have dropped quite soon into the programme, I would have quite enjoyed it. It was quite well done. It was a very good parody of that kind of 8.30pm programme. It was a very good parody of the kind of stuff Greg Wallace does as well because he was really setting himself up as well, I think, this. Um, uh, Kieran and Katie, do either of you see it? Kieran? No, no. Katie? No. Oh, without, and now, there's no point watching it now either because we've ruined it for you. Um, it made me think, though, it's been a long time since we've had a good spoof. I know you've written about this today, Ben, but like, it's, we're a long way from the brass eye days of politicians warding of the perils of cake. Um, absolutely. We, now, we live in a snowflake age, don't we? So, um, no, I mean, it, to be serious, uh, Ofcom rules have changed on contributor care. So in the old days when uh, Sasha Baron Cohen could um, interview people and they, he would just say it's, it, we're doing a youth programme and then you'd sort of catch people like Tony Ben out and all sorts of other people who, were think, who thought they were having a proper interview. Um, you can't do that anymore. You have to um, give them advance notice of what the programme's about and there's all sorts of new rules that are in the Ofcom programme code about uh, contributor care and so forth. So you can't really do that. So now the kind of modern equivalent of, of the LEG is Philomena Kunk, who, who played very well by Diane Morgan. But you, you sense with that, well, you, it's a fact that the, the, the people she interviews, like the academics and people, are sort of in on the joke. So the kind of, she's being daft, but there's no kind of sense of them sort of wondering who she is. There's no, that dynamic They know what's lost, going yeah. on. Also, do you feel like we've, we've provided sufficient contributor care to you, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I, 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 I worry that our contributor care policies might not be up to scratch. Um, do, sure. I mean, yeah, I think you could definitely do more. Do you? Do you? Improve, there's no after, there's no the after show service. No, yeah, exactly. Wi-Fi. A, d- a debrief no and a signing of force. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Is it a shame that we can't do proper spoofs anymore? Um, yeah, I think it is uh, probably a shame. I can see why these things get more complicated particularly i suppose the more and maybe this is wrong looking i suppose the fact that not anyone can try and f- uh form their own spoof because we can film things in so many ways maybe that ha- increases the risk a bit um but um it is quite a fun genre it just means that you have to not take yourself too seriously and i think we all take ourselves more and more seriously as every day goes on that's a good point what about you kevin yeah and, and i completely agree with kate i also think that as well as the fun of it you can get something a bit reviewing, particularly of those people who um, think that they are, uh, you know, the, the kind of older generation um, who, who think that they are up on youth cu- culture and uh, in touch when they're really not. And kind of some of those um, self-deceptions can be exposed by this kind of programme, which is... Uh, probably quite important as well. It's quite funny. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Because I mean, when Ali G did Tony Ben, he 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 took issue with him. He didn't like the language he used about women in particular, and it said a lot about Tony Ben. I, I might rather like the way he responded to him. But also with someone like Borat, which is another Sasha Baron Cohen character, he was sort of openly anti-Semitic, and it was very interesting. It was very hard-edged to the satire when you saw people kind of tolerating these kind of appalling views, and he sang horrible songs about Jewish people and so forth. And and that was it was it was very kind of. Um, 
revealing uh, that you can't have that anymore because um, well, it's harder anyway. Katie Balls from The Spectator and Kieran Andrews from The Times. Of course, you can get yourself a Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, whatever happens to the Greens. Now she says she's standing down. They've had successes since they won majority control of a council for the first time in local elections earlier this year. But the Greens have struggled to achieve a surge at a national level, despite all of the rise of concern and conversation about the environment and the climate emergency dominating the headlines. Well, European Greens have made it into coalition government in Germany, Australia, Belgium, and of course they're, they're showing power in Scotland. But is it just the UK's voting system that stopped the Greens from breaking through into the big time? Today, we're trying to get to the bottom of whatever happened to the Greens. In a moment, we're going to hear from Sean Berry, who's tried to hold on to Caroline Lucas's seat in Brighton at the next election. But first, uh, Kieran Pedley is Research Director of the Pollsters Ipsos. Hi, Kieran. Good morning. Uh, and joining me in the studio, Tom Whipple is the Times' science editor. Hi, Tom. Hello. Um, Kieran, first of all, just take us through... Where the Greens are in the polls, and is there any sign of them capitalising on, you know, we, we get told that 70% of people like the net zero targets, that people think we should be doing stuff about climate change, but that doesn't seem to be feeding through into their, their polling numbers. Yes, I, I agree. I think when you look at the data, it's very clear that there's strong evidence of public concern about climate change and matters of the environment. Around 18, 10 tell us they're concerned about this. Um, if anything, the public tends to be a bit more uh, in favour of bringing forward net zero policies rather than delaying them. Um, but that's not transferring, as you say, to support for Greens in the opinion polls. Um, at the moment, the polling average suggests that the Greens are around 6%. Um, so very much in those uh, mid to high single digits. 
But this isn't unusual. We've seen this in the past. In 2019, the Greens were around 8% in June of 2019, then went on to only get around 3% nationally um, at the 2019 general election. Um, there's a number of different reasons for this. I think the, the electoral system certainly does uh, punish the Greens to some extent and encourage that vote to get squeezed as general elections approach. And we face a battle between fundamentally Labour and the Conservatives, at least nationally, although that's different in different parts of the country. But also, you know, well, as important as green issues are, they're not the only issues that are important to voters. And right now, the cost of living and public services are, are the top two issues on their minds. Tom, do you think that part of the problem is that, that green policies, I mean, you'll know this when you're trying to sell a green story into the news desk, they're just not very sexy or they're a bit samey. Part of it is, but I think part of it is that the, the, when we mentioned net zero, you know, it's mainstream. Um, I mean, would you say UKIP were electorally unsuccessful? I mean, I, I think you would, but we're having Brexit. And in the same sense, you know, the Green Party are electorally unsuccessful. Um, they are broadly a single-issue party, but that single issue is now one of the most important issues in politics. So, yes, if we had a coalition government and I was very... or, or, or a proportionate representation I was very concerned about green issues, I might say, I want Labour with a slice of green, so I'm going to vote green. Um, but in the current system, I, th I think most people would think, perhaps I want to see what the policies of the parties that are likely to make it in again to, going to be. On the, on the Labour question, Kieran, um, for a while, I know it, it looked like Labour, although they were gaining clearly votes on the Tories, were sort of losing about one in ten voters out to the Greens. Is that still the case, or is part of their enormous, uh, Labour's enormous lead in the polls, is that also getting back some of that Green vote? Yeah, I think when, when it comes to the Greens, Labour can't be complacent about losing um, yeah, progressive votes to various parties, um, and, and the Greens being... Uh, the Greens being one of them. But then when we look at the around 6% of, the, of, the, of people that say they'll vote Green at the next general election, around one in four of them said that they voted uh, uh, Labour last time in 2019. It sounds like a large number and you know, it shouldn't be taken for granted by Keir Starmer and Labour, of course. But fundamentally, that's one in four of 6%. So we're talking about something that might affect Labour's vote share by one or two points at the next general election, which is, you know, if things do narrow, isn't nothing. But in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to the cost of living and the battle versus the Conservatives, uh, that's likely to be uh, that bit more important. And Tom, when you're weighing up the parties, uh, and this, this, this debate we've had in the last few days about who's the most green and do we need to agree, so is there anything that we're doing which actually rises to the occasion rises to the challenge of tackling climate change? Uh, I, I think my, my personal view is we will get there, we will get there late, and I'm talking as, as a world, because this only happens yeah. as a world. Um, Britain has been doing better than other countries. One of my bugbears is that, that actually every country pretty much in the world, including China, has a net zero strategy, and we talk about it as if we alone in isolation are the ones doing this, and we would be the, the international outriders if... if outliers if we if we got rid of it but no obviously we're not doing enough the the pledges we have aren't going to hit the two degrees as a globe and we're probably not going to hit those pledges but equally we're in a position where the world's trying to do something very very hard through international diplomacy and it, it it's grindingly getting there just a bit too slow so if, if you want my optimism we are are yeah the sausage factory of international diplomacy is not doing well, but it's happening. The weird thing is, Kieran, with this, is that, that Britain's record is actually not bad, but it's almost like, the, well, particularly the Conservatives, they sort of pretend 
that they're not being as successful as they are. They sort of it's unlike any other area of policy where they overegg the pudding. They're sort of underegging their pudding. Yeah, there's, there's a real challenge when it comes to uh, policies around the environment. Um, on the one hand, you find that the public are very supportive of the idea of net, uh, you know of dealing with net zero uh, and, and dealing with climate change in the, and, and the, in the environment. But on the other hand, when you get to specific individual policies, it can get more contentious. So on the one hand, you'll find um, that you know, when it comes to governments issuing subsidies, let's say, to, to move towards more to greener energy or to encourage business to invest in green technology, public are very you know, in favour of that. But when it comes to potentially higher taxes on you know, the meat or dairy that they eat or drink or uh, their air travel and things, that becomes a bit more contentious and a bit more divisive. So I suppose it's a challenge for policymakers, which is going to, and, and for the different political parties as we approach the next general election, is it's kind of a detail of what some of these, uh, what, what, what dealing with net zero means in practice. And I suppose that's the thing when it comes to selling it, isn't it? Is that when you, the, the big guy is far, everyone can say they like the idea of net zero by 2050, Tom. But once you're then writing a story saying that your cheese is going to double in price, that becomes a real world thing that people are then less enthusiastic about. Yeah. And look, it was very, very easy for people like Boris Johnson to say we're going to do X in 2030 and Y in 2050 because they don't have to deal with getting those cars off the streets and indeed getting our boilers out of the house, which is a massive, massive problem that we haven't dealt with. But, you know, this thing, we say, is this boring? It should be boring. This is going to be with us for the next 40, 50 years, all of our lives. It can't be continually exciting. It has to get into the nitty gritty of policy. And that is hopefully where, where we're going. Well, we'll see. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of policy in, uh, in a minute. Tom, really good to see you. Tom Whipple, uh, the Times Science Editor. Kieran Pedley from uh, Ipsos. Thanks very much for, for taking us through the sort of the, the high-level uh, um, questions on this. But uh, we should point out the Greens are doing well in large parts of Europe. They're currently in coalition government in Germany, Austria, Belgium, Luxembourg and Ireland and power-sharing in Scotland, of course. Let's speak now to uh, Terry Reintke, who's the co-president of the Green Party grouping in the European Parliament and a German MEP. Hi, Terry. Hi. Hi, good to speak to you. Good to have you with us. Um, give us a sense of where Green, your overall picture is the, 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 the head of the Green grouping across Europe. What state are Green politicians in right now? Well, I would say we are very much in the center of the political debate because, as was pointed out, um, issues of how we are going to tackle climate change, how we are going to face the environmental crisis that is ahead of us is really in the center of policymaking right now all across Europe, I would say all across the world. Um, Greens have the right concepts for that. So um, we are really in Germany where we are in government, but also in other European countries trying to put that into practice right now, what has been talked about theoretically for a very long time. But I would add that we are absolutely not a single issue party. Uh, I think that the perception over the past years, at least in Germany and other European countries, has really shifted, that we also have a very clear social agenda, that we are fighting for democracy, for fundamental rights. Um, so I would say that um, we have really moved into the center of the political debate uh, in large parts of Europe. Um Let's talk a bit about the uh, the impact that Greens can have. Is it are you confident that when the Greens become the smaller party in a in a power sharing thing, do they actually drag 
whichever country that is, into being greener? Or do the Greens end up suffering the fate of the Lib Dems as they did in the UK when they were wiped out? Recent local elections show that the Greens in, in Germany are uh, having a hard time in the polls. They're actually being the small party in a, in a power sharing isn't always, you don't always have the impact that you might like. Well, obviously, the situation that we have in different governments is not always exactly the same. Uh, I think we are more successful um, in certain respects um, than we are maybe in others. But I would generally say that, yes, um, because we have a very clear program, because we are very program policy driven parties uh, most of the time, um, we actually do have a very clear impact. If you look, for example, at, at the expansion of renewable energies, you can very clearly see that in countries where we have been in power, uh, we are further ahead. Uh, when we look at environmental policies, we can very clearly see a track record. Um, so I would say that where Greens have gotten into government, where Greens have gotten into power, and they have definitely left a mark, uh, and they have really changed the way that, that things are run. We're having quite a... Um conflicted uh, conversation in the UK uh, at the moment. People are concerned about what's happening in, uh, well, across Europe with the heat wave and, and their holidays being ruined in roads, while also being annoyed by Just Stop Oil gluing themselves uh, to things. Um, what do you make of groups like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil? Are they helpful in sort of nudging the conversation or do they end up becoming, you know, do they, they harm the, the green cause, do you think? Well, you, you see, I'm not going to comment on different forms of protest. Um, I think that um, obviously there are different ways of addressing um, a, a problem and some are more useful than others from my point of view. Um, but when we look at reality, what we should actually be talking about is the massive impact that climate change already has today. You were hinting to the heat waves that we see in Europe. We have forest fires. Um, we also at the same time have extreme weather events in Italy where we have hailstorms. If you see the region of Milan, for example, where you had these, these ice waters that were going through cities. So uh, obviously climate change is not something that is happening in the future. It's happening now. It's going to have a massive, massive effect on all of our lives. And um, so the message of the Greens is absolutely clear. We have to act now. And that means that we will have to actually implement policies and not only speak about numbers, but do in practice uh, what we have been preaching now for many years. Um, just finally then, do you think there'll ever be, when you sort of look across um, uh, the countries all your, 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 your grouping draws from, do you think there will ever be a green-led government in Europe? And which country do you think is mo most likely to deliver it? Well, I absolutely think there will be green-led governments. You know, on the regional level in Germany, we already have green-led governments. For example, in Baden-Württemberg, one of the biggest states in Germany, um, I think that it will very heavily depend on um, how much we can keep a fact and science-based driven debate. Um, because right now, the biggest danger for me is that we are starting uh, not to talk about facts, not to talk about science-led um, uh, arguments, but that we are actually um, speaking about uh, sometimes very fear-driven narratives uh, mostly coming from populists. I think for Greens, it is important to really stay on what we need to do now and then I'm very hopeful that we will also have green-led governments in Europe. Now, we are asking, whatever happened to the Greens? Uh, they had the big breakthrough when Caroline Lucas became uh, the first Green MP in 2010. 13 years later, she's standing down. But now we're joined by uh, the uh, the Green Party candidate uh, hoping to replace her. Sean Bowie's in the studio with him. Good morning, nice to, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Congratulations on being selected to replace um, uh, Caroline. We want to try and get to the bottom of... 
when we're talking about with just stop oil over here or uh, heat waves across Europe, there's so much of the climate conversations going on. The Greens aren't necessarily part of it. I want to read something to you because while we've been having this conversation, uh, Diana's texted in. says, the thing is with the Greens, it's also punishing and grim. They give the impression they don't like us. There's no message of hope. Voting for them would be like opting to be in detention at school. That's very harsh, and I don't recognise that description of us at all. I spend all of my time on the on the London Assembly. I've been co-leader yeah. of the Greens. I've taken part in the in the big debates for the election, putting forwards ideas that are about investing in people, about creating jobs, making their homes warmer in, in winter, less overheated in summer, making sure they've got clean air, healthy streets. These are the policies we want to implement, and we'll do it from a government level, from a local government level, and, and through the the. the an assembly through the mayor level as well. We are all about good ideas and pushing them forward. You were just talking to Terry from the um, German Greens about what Greens do when they're in government. I mean, we enter governments and, and arrangements like that with a great plan of good ideas. Um, and yes, yeah, some of them won't be taken up by the parties that we're working with, um, but a lot of them do. And that's that's the way we work. That's what we've done in London as well. Um, and these aren't just environmental policies either. They're social policies. We are all about making life better for people, helping people to thrive, respecting their rights, but also providing them with a good, healthy environment to grow up in. Is, that, is, is it a fair criticism that sometimes the green debate does become... You've got to stop driving your cars, you've got to stop eating meat, you've got to stop going on holiday. It's taking away the things that people like in life rather than talking about how this could be, you know, good quality jobs or lowering your energy bills. That actually, it's a lot to do with the framing of it. Yeah, and a lot of the ideas that I've just talked yeah. about are, are big ideas. Yeah. Um, and then the, the things that make the, the, the radio and the, and the TV debates are the, the sort of edges of those things where there are some conflicts. So um, ultra-low emission zone has been a big debate. I mean, in the London Assembly, cross-party, we've spent a lot of time listening to those people who find that that policy, which is a really positive policy to, to save people's lives, where at the edges of that policy, some people are badly affected. And we've been arguing for, for example, a bigger scrappage scheme. We successfully got the uh, requirements for disabled people made much easier. You just need to prove you're um, on certain benefits now instead of proving just just replacing a, an adapted car. That that really, really widens the scope of that. And that comes from listening to people who are affected yeah. at those edges. But unfortunately, I mean, we do find that people who um, are find themselves um, potentially not catered for by the initial plans that come forward um, are often very, very angry. But yeah. I promise you that we're always listening to those people and that we do want to fix those those edge problems. You know, if people find that um, going on holiday abroad um, is difficult because either it's it's more expensive, if you, if you need to fly for the third or fourth time a year, we want to reduce the taxes for your first flight, in fact, um, or that the, the island you're flying to is on fire. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that the UK has a thriving tourist industry, wonderful places to visit, I mean, what's the purpose of a holiday if not to relax in great surroundings? Let's make the UK part of that as well. Um, why is it the I mean, concern about the environment? You know, it bounces around, but it has definitely gone up in recent times. But support for the Greens haven't. Are you doing, as, as Tom Whipple was saying a bit earlier on, you're sort of mainstreaming concern about the environment in the way that UKIP mainstreams, you know, you probably won't appreciate the, the comparison with UKIP in, in lots of ways, but mainstreamed concern about, Brussels and the EU without ever taking a big foothold in national politics. Is it, is, it, is it a win for you that people are concerned about the issues you're concerned about if 
ultimately it doesn't make that much difference in terms of national politics. I think our strategy is very different to UKIP's strategy. I mean, um, we think people will take notice of us when we start to threaten their votes and, and you've seen that happen yeah. um, on a number of occasions. But we've got a very serious attitude to this. We are interested in power, which I don't think UKIP ever were. We're, we're building up our power through local government. I mean, we've, we've stuck with first past the post ever except the London yeah. Assembly where I'm elected. Um, but on, in local councils where it is first past the post, we are increasing our number of representatives. If you look at the chart, it's pretty much exponential. We're going up by hundreds of councillors each time there's a big election. And that is showing, you know, in the influence that we're having. We're now in uh, partnerships, in administrations. Often we, you know, we don't do just formal coalitions, but we'll support um, the work of other parties. And we have a strong influence on, I think, 30 councils across the UK. And that's growing all the time. We're breaking through onto brand new councils in places you'd never believe people would vote green every single time there's an election. And we're, we're doing that so that we can build up, like we did in Brighton Pavilion originally, so that we can build up that record in local government and, and start to, to make it feasible for people to vote for us as MPs. And now we've got places all around the country where that's a possibility at the next election. Mm. It's, it's slower and steadier. It's, you know, it's not so rather than that. You talk about first past the post. There. Given the system we have... Mm. Um, with no disrespect to your, your co-leaders, um, it's only going to be Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer who is Prime Minister after the next election. It's a very binary thing, isn't it? it that's, uh, there is one Prime works. Minister with a Given lot of power. Given that yeah. you take your votes predominantly from uh, the Labour Party, and certainly where you're standing most of the time, your your mm, rivals are Labour quibble MPs. with that a little bit. Well, in, in Brighton, that was that was a, a Labour seat before, wasn't it? Yeah, before but Caroline wanted, I mean, in places... Bristol, the seat you're looking for, you're hoping to catch is, is, taking, is up against Labour. In terms of councillors this year, we took more seats off the Conservatives but, than we did off Labour. But your success at the next general election could, in a close outcome, prevent Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister. The only thing that will prevent Keir Starmer being Prime Minister is Keir Starmer. Um, at the moment, he seems really careless about a lot of support that the Labour Party have won over the years for things that are to do with the environment, but also to do with social justice and human rights. The, the, the U-turns that we've seen on things like student tuition fees, on, on rent controls, even on the two-child benefit cap. You know, these are things that people are being turned away from Labour by. If we're a more attractive option, we're, we're just out there promoting positive things. Um, if we're a more attractive option, that's not that's not our fault. That's, that's his fault. I mean, at the moment, I, I'm really, particularly with the um, reaction to the Uxbridge by-election, I'm, I'm really concerned that, that Keir Starmer isn't very good at politics, because that was outrageous, throwing the, the Mayor of London under the bus for a policy he He'd spent many years and his whole political reputation on. That's not actually good leadership, and you do want good leadership from a new prime minister. Um, I want to ask you: We talked about setting out the positive case and doing the positive things. Are Just Stop Oil a positive ally in your 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 hope that people will take climate issues seriously? Look, the climate situation is a genuine emergency. We are seeing the impacts of, of climate chaos in parts of Europe that you wouldn't expect. We can all now envisage being displaced by climate impacts. And people in those organisations are incredibly worried about that and prepared to take serious action. We're a different part of the picture. We're a very yeah. different part of the green movement. But when you talk about um, emergencies, in some cases they've stopped ambulances. That's an emergency. Is this the they, right they, they have a clear policy to move out of the way for green lights. If, if, you know, if they, they're obviously trying to get out of the way, they're, not, they're never going to block an ambulance intentionally. But... Being, let me, let because me, you're on the same side as them 
politically they, and in terms of the message, are they damaging the the cause, essentially? If you want people to... Because actually what it ends up doing is a whole load of people in an argument about Just Stop Oil, mm. rather than talking about the issues. And, and then, you know, so you have a whole load of people suddenly find themselves against the issue that you're campaigning on. I don't, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Again, we're talking about the things that make the news, the things that are on the edges. My view, and the way I talk about it, is that, that people like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, Greta Thunberg, people taking direct action, they're the fire alarm, and we're the fire brigade. We're the, people like who come and, we're the people who come and fix things. Um, you know, we are... They're, they're, they're almost an essential part of the um, the wider movement. There's always going to be people who are protesting about the most serious but like last week issues. I had, uh, Mark... But we're, we're the ones... You, know, you vote for us because you know last that we're week, the ones who are sensible. We're the ones who are going you're to be on the coming in. Last week I had Mark Rowley, the head stuff. of the Met, was sitting in the chair where you are. Mm. He said he had 500 officers caught up last week dealing with Just Stop Oil protests. That, that's his choice. That is his choice um, to, to put that well, much policing job. resource. He's got to police people breaking like the law. I mean, if you see, do you think you, you shouldn't be doing that? I've I've been on protests before where the policing has been absolutely out of all proportion um, to what was being planned in terms of disruption. Um, I can't comment on these particular deployments. But if a climate skeptic turned up to your office and threw black paint all over your office, you'd call the police, wouldn't you? We, 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 we would. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's levels of damage and, and criminality. Walking slowly in the road, though, I mean, you know. Um, we are the part of the movement that is there to act on the concerns of those people. How those people express those concerns isn't really our responsibility. And again, you know, we spent more of this interview have, on this. Well, not really. We actually, we should be talking about how many billions of pounds need to go into um, home insulation, why we need to stop And where does that billions of pounds come from? Oil. Is that well, higher taxes? That initially comes from from taxes on wealth, stopping subsidising the fossil fuel industry, making sure that we've got rational policies around taxing carbon. But ultimately, those kinds of investments create jobs. That all comes back into a, a bigger, stronger, more resilient economy in the end. And it saves people money on their bills. Yet every single person would benefit from the, the countrywide insulation programme that we have got planned. Those are, those are big picture things. Um, they're not Annoying, yeah. so they're not making they're not making the news. <laughs> uh, last question then: How many Green MPs will there be after the next election? We've got really, really strong campaigns and candidates in Brighton Pavilion, in Bristol Central, in Herefordshire, and in Waveney Valley in Suffolk and Norfolk. And those are the seats that we're going to be fighting the very, very hardest to win in the next general election. We hope we'll succeed because we need whoever the next government is. We need green voices in Parliament, holding them to account, putting forward those great ideas and making sure that they don't just drift off at the first sign of opposition. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Get in touch about anything. Email me, matt, at times.radio, or Twitter, or tweet, or X, or thread, or put it wherever you like. Uh, But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. (laughs) 